Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're listening to episode 41. It's like, how would you describe a memory if somebody was challenging you and saying it didn't exist? You'd say, well, no, I remember the gravel. I remember the sound of it. I remember what the clouds looked like that day and exactly what shoes I was wearing. So you would, that's how you would explain a memory or describe a memory if somebody was saying, no, I think you might be making this up. And so that's what she's doing. And there's actually a line towards the end of the first chapter where she says she's pouring over the details like an investigator might, you know, pour over files of a crime, like just trying to look for every detail to prove that it's real. This is author Kelly McNeil talking about her debut novel, A Day Like This. It's a story about an altered reality. An artist named Annie, who remembers having a daughter and an idyllic yellow house in the countryside. Five whole years of memories that suddenly don't exist in the reality around her. Anytime she is describing her experience at the Yellow House, which itself is a character, I mean, it's capitalized the Yellow House in the book. Anytime she's there, I intentionally made it very um, immersive because I wanted it to feel like the reader was being immersed in a painting, much like it would be in the artist's imagination of Annie. Whereas uh, when she's in the current scenes of London and New York, it's more real time and she's not picking up on so many details. Um, and it's, yes. it's more, um, yeah, it just kind of, it, it takes the, the pace of a normal prose, I would say, yes. as opposed to the immersive quality of those yellow house scenes, which may or may not be real. Yes. I think you convey that beautifully through the language that you use. And I also, I, I took this in as an audiobook, So I feel like your narrator also captured a lot of that, the intensity of that immersion in language, even just in her tone of voice, just brought Annie to life in her, mm-hmm. in her frustration, in her panic, in her resolve, you know, all of those, all of those great qualities you've given this character came through really well, I think, in audio. I totally agree. Amanda did a beautiful job of that. There's this sense of urgency and, and kind of yes. a panic to the first half of the book where she is just distraught and she's desperate. And that desperation definitely comes through in Amanda's performance of the book. Yeah, And you can hear, and it's funny because there's a shift as there is in the book where she starts to acquiesce and say, I have to acknowledge that this is the reality that I, I have made this up, or this is the product of mental illness. And it's kind of, it, it changes in Amanda's voice as well. And I just thought she did such a beautiful job. Yes, yes. You brought up the yellow house and you actually start the whole book with a quote about a house, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's mm-hmm. a quote about a house and the sense of home and our sense of place. 
Um, mm -hmm. You just described even how you separated sense of place from the yellow house to these other places that happen in the novel. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's so tied to memory, but it's also a really integral part to your storytelling. Well, part of the story, kind of a subplot of the story is the exploration of the uh, the meaning it, that some people assign to objects and homes. I mean, these are these are places that are made of cement and wood. And yes. um, but then for many people, it can be a really emotional experience to to leave a home like that because it starts to feel like a living, breathing part of your family. Yeah. So I, I wanted that sort of a a sub theme, I guess you could call it, yes. of longing for a place um, that maybe exists in your memory, someplace that meant something to you in your past, and you just are desperate to go back to it, but you know you can't, or um, yes. just a very loving approach, nostalgia towards places and things. Yes. So in her different places of memory, Mm -hmm. She has very different experiences. And I think that mm -hmm. ties exactly to what you're saying. Like everybody can mm -hmm. relate to, oh, the years that I lived in the city, I was a different person. I felt different things. I experienced different things than right. the years that I spent at a slower pace, um, mm -hmm. raising children, especially. I think there's a real, there's a real theme of motherhood for me in this book mm -hmm. and the power mm -hmm. of motherhood and how, you know, our life can take many different paths. Mm -hmm. um, but how, how, when motherhood is one of those paths, how strong that is, how compelling that is to our own identity. And so she is, your main character is her sense of longing is tied to place. I totally felt that, but also tied to this relationship that is no longer there. So do you want to talk a little bit about why or how you how you decided to make that part of Annie's story. The daughter is in one place and she's not with her now. I wanted to explore a story of a mother's intuition because mother's intuition, you know, we talk about it and we throw that term around, but it's actually something that is so um, integral to the experience of motherhood. And so when you separate the child and the existence of the child from the mother, but the intuition stays, I thought that would be a really interesting story yes. to explore because you, it really, that's all she has going for her is mother's intuition and the feeling of, I know I was a mother and this was, this was part of my being. So it's not as simple as, oh, well, my life would have been different if I would have taken this job or not taken this job or married this guy versus married that guy. When you become a mother, it changes who you are. It changes the very fabric of your being. And yes. so to have that entire tapestry removed from her personality and have her placed in a life where that never existed, it, it you know, all that's left is sort of like the echo of who she was. And that's yes. what she's truly longing for and what she still hears. And so I wanted to have her go through this new experience um, with, like I said, the echoes and the, you know, she starts to be sort of haunted by things from her Yes. Her old life. And that becomes yes. without giving too much away, it starts to become the catalyst that pushes her forward to say, well, no, wait a minute. Maybe there's something a little bit strange or mysterious going on here. Yes. Strange and mysterious. Definitely. <laughs> but also you feel this feels rooted in science, which I really like where those things intersect, the strange, the magic, mm -hmm. the mysterious and science intersect. I think you've just captured that. So in such an exciting way in this entire story. 
did you start with more science or more magic? Did you start with intuition and it, and you found the science that sort of supported that or how did you weave this together? Yeah, so that was one of the most rewarding and fun parts of writing this story is that I, I believe just personally that there is a lot of overlap of between spirituality and science and we as a culture tend to separate them. But in reality, when you look at them, there's so much intersection there. I don't know that I felt that strongly about that before I wrote this book. Um, but what happened is, you know, I had this initial idea for the story. I wanted there to be multiple possibilities for what could explain this very strange thing happening to this woman. And so the obvious choice is that she's inherited her mother's mental illness. And that's the most likely reason we're, we're going to find. But then, you know, she's a very grounded character. I wrote her that way intentionally so that she would not leap in the way that some people might to the supernatural or anything mystical because she's just such a grounded person. But when I started to do some more research into memory and the artist's imagination and some of the psychological and research that has been done into both of those things, I really started to find it so compelling. And I thought, well, now, wait a minute, there's something much deeper here than just a scientific or medical explanation. I was reading a book by the physicist who I give a shout out to in the book, Brian Greene, and he studies string theory and he makes these ideas feel very possible in your own life. Mm -hmm. And so I was inspired by some of the things that he was writing. And when I started to figure out that I could braid all of those elements together, I yeah. thought, okay. And which happened to me about halfway through the book. And, and so the reader definitely goes on the journey with me. I wanted That's to intentionally leave it up to the reader in many parts to interpret the story based on their own belief system to dive into their own belief system a little bit more. It's interesting to me that you just brought up also artists' inspiration because you, you've created an Annie, an artist. She is, she's a painter. And one of, one of my favorite things that she says is she's talking about her artwork and she says, my intent is to capture the longing of lost places and whispers of roads not taken. And of course, that's also what the book is all about. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that was a nice way to weave it into, you know, where do artists get their, their gift, right? How do they tap into it? And that also, I think, helps elevate this idea of, um, of what is mystical or, you know, sort of the mystery of creativity. It was, um, as a writer, you know, we create these whole worlds in, in our heads that, that become so when we're focusing to a certain degree, it becomes almost more real than the external world. And I know that that's the case for, you know, anybody who's in sort of that state of flow, musicians, painters, any, any type of artistry like that, where you're having to create different worlds and in your own head, I thought, well, now, you know, what if you really got carried away in that and you didn't yeah. come out of it? Maybe your life would look a lot like Annie. If that interior world just replaced eventually and you kind of had a break in reality that could be something that would so easily happen and has happened to artists over time as we know where they they do break with reality yes it's very important that she's an artist it's a very important mm -hmm. component of who she is even though you mm -hmm. described her earlier as being really grounded 
which Mm -hmm. I completely agreed with. I think she approaches everything like a skeptic, but she also does have this element of incredible creativity. And you make mention of Van Gogh. Don't you also talk about the yellow house in Van Gogh? That was just a moment of synchronicity in my writing world. I have to say, as I was writing, Van Gogh came up... um, yeah, that he did have a house. That one of the things that he wrote about was the, or excuse me, that he painted was the yellow house. That's where he lived. So that was just a moment of synchronicity in a writer's world where you just have that light yes. bulb go on and go, oh, that was just amazing that 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 worked out that way. Yes. So it didn't come to you purposefully from the very beginning. Like you start the book with a quote about the house, and so it's always mm-hmm. fascinating to me how I think there is synchronicity for writers. How. Mm-hmm. In the writing process, you discover things, even if you are mm-hmm. a plotter and you have a lot of outline, that right. you also then have these moments of inspiration in the process. It did. I yeah, I just happened to be watching a documentary on Van Gogh when I was about halfway through the book, and and I just it was like it was most it was such an exciting moment. I thought, oh, I'm going to I'm going to yeah. drop this in there, and it was just such a beautiful addition to to weave in. It was fun. Yes, because I think there are, um, you know, we were talking about science and mystery, but there is a lot mm-hmm. about mental health in the book. Mm-hmm. There are even, even from the very beginning about memory disorders, it grounds it in what's real. And yet you allow the reader to sort of escape into things, other possibilities for things, which I, I always enjoy escaping into other possibilities. You know, we mentioned earlier that Andy being a grounded person, but yet also having this um, sort of fantastical artist's imagination. And the grounded part of her isn't necessarily who she is. It's a re- it's a reaction to the way she was raised. And I cover that. That's a big part of her, he- her journey is healing herself from the past experiences with her mom. She's terrified of She both loves her mom, but she's terrified of becoming like her and suffering from the same type of mental illness. And so she forces herself to be more grounded and nothing. She doesn't want any type of whimsy in her life because she fears it because it's so closely related to the psychosis that her mother had. So she, at any signs of anything that you can't explain in concrete form, she runs the other direction. And so I wanted to allow her to become the person she, to have the freedom to become the person that she always wanted to be and free of the fear of her past. That's what we all want, isn't it? That's so Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's something else about the paths that we take, the choices we make. As a mom, like talking to my kids about like when they were really little, I would say, you can do anything, like you can do anything. And they were like, no, I can't do anything. But, but you really can, like all of these, you want to impart in your kids this idea that every time you're making a choice and a decision, you're, you're heading down a path and to enjoy the path that you're on, to enjoy the place that you're at. And so there's, to me, there's, as you finish this book, and I don't, I don't want to give any spoilers, but you also, you demonstrate that the path that you're on, the choices that you make, there's good in, in both of these versions. And I think Annie comes to see the good in both her memories and the life that she's living at the moment in New York. I just liked that. I think that's so a good life lesson in general to appreciate where you are, that life is not perfect. I think that's one of the big takeaways. It's a big theme. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I wanted there to be, you know, I do the same thing with my kids, you know, they take themselves very seriously, just like we all take ourselves seriously to a little bit too seriously when we're choosing sometimes when we're making choices. Um, But I also think that sometimes we get to a point in our lives where we think we might be kind of a foregone conclusion. And and there is no chance for reinvention or to choose a different path. And I really wanted people to come out of this book and say, and I've gotten so many emails. Oh my gosh, they've been, I've heard from so many lovely people who have said, you know what, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, maybe it's not too late for me to go back to this thing that I loved. Or maybe I maybe I do have more freedom because I think we feel very boxed in in life um, sometimes by the choices that we've made. And when you expand your perception of your world and, and you really start to see how big, how big it all is. And you can see that the, there are really just our possibilities for ourselves are really only limited by the, the limitations we place on ourselves and they're not real. And so when you, yeah. when you really just sort of sit back and you, appreciate what you have and and then allow for possibilities to open in ways that you may have never even expected really that's kind of where some beautiful things have happened and can happen yes I completely agree I completely agree okay in this moment of agreement let's pause in the conversation I need to share some of the first chapter with you In this first few minutes of the book, you will meet the yellow house and the lilacs that end up being a key sensory component to the story. This is from A Day Like This by Kelly McNeil, narrated by one of my favorite voice actors, Amanda Lee Cobb. When Graham and I bought this place, we nicknamed it the Yellow House, after the color of the wooden siding, and then spent a considerable amount of time standing on all sides of it, heads cocked to one side, imagining where on earth to start. There was no landscaping to speak of. And when a house sits on ten acres in the middle of an endless field, you really tend to notice such a thing. A white porch spanned the entire front of the house, and from its perch atop a hill, one could enjoy the kind of view that photographers dream of. Like a number of 30-somethings at the time, we'd left city life in Manhattan to try our hand at life in the country in upstate New York. Not a hobby farm, exactly, but perhaps inspired by the romantic notion of one. Trouble was, we didn't know a single thing about old houses or big land. But our timing was good, it seemed. The house had been vacant for a number of years, and the grown children of the previous owner had been eager to get it off their hands. Plus, it was 2007, and they were doling out mortgages like free candy. So, after handing over the majority of our savings and signing the closing papers, we were the proud owners of a house that looked like it had been drawn from childhood dreams with a box of crayons. A little bit crooked, but perfectly so. The day we signed the closing papers... The first thing we'd purchased were items we'd spotted at a roadside stand that sold vegetables, used furniture, and odds and ends. We bought two wooden rocking chairs for the porch, which we painted white, and two three-dollar styrofoam cups of tiny seedlings, marked 
lilac. It's a sign, I'd said to Graham after spotting the little plants. My favorite flower. He'd merely raised a skeptical eyebrow. What? You never know, I remember saying with an optimistic shrug. I imagined the scent of lilacs wafting dreamily over the edges of the porch while Graham and I passed evenings in the rocking chairs, looking out over the silos at the farm below. How long does it take for them to bloom? I inquired. The old man who managed the stand wiped a tanned, grease-stained hand across his chin. Uh, should be about three, four years, maybe. Four years? I grimaced. But then Graham chuckled as he handed me the cup, which I held like a new baby. He surprised me with a kiss, smiled, then grabbed a second cup of baby lilacs before echoing my previous comment. Hey, you never know. Optimism is infectious, after all. Lilacs aren't hard to grow. In fact, most people would put them in the weed category. They're that easy. But my previous experiences with plants of any kind household plants, potted plants, vegetables, had all ended in grim death. Once, when I was little, my parents had taken us on a rare weekend outing to a farm that grew acres of corn, tomatoes, and a dozen other fruits and vegetables. The farmer wore full denim overalls and let kids help with shucking corn, the scent of corn silk and tomato vines on our fingers in a place that I decided was heaven on earth. So, I felt especially bitter about the absence of the green thumb gene in my DNA. When it came to plants, Graham told me I either loved them to death or abandoned them. Neither was good. I couldn't even manage to grow those cheap little cactus flowers they sell at the checkout counter in discount stores. As I'd stood that first day beside my porch, holding the kitchen spoon I'd used to dig the two miniature holes, looking down at the sorry little stems, I had to genuinely feel bad. They sat no taller than two inches amid a stretch of clay soil, already blowing sideways in the unforgiving hilltop wind. I figured they'd never in a million years survive. But somehow they did. Throughout that first summer, I watched with a suspicious eye as they grew a little stronger and then stood in jaw-dropped bewilderment when I realized they'd somehow lived through a tough Catskills winter. Two years later, I was rewarded with my first, very own lilac, a small little miraculous flower. And later, in the spring after Hannah was born, I'd rocked her on the front porch for hours next to a dozen purple and white blooms. Now my home was filled with vases of miraculous springtime blossoms and the fragrance wafting in on the breeze through raised windows. When I think back on the day that Hannah left my world, recalling the details in order, one by one. It's always the lilacs I see first. In the end, I just hoped that people would come away from whatever, whatever they believe in terms of Annie's story. I, I hope that they come away with the feeling that there could be a little bit more magic going on in their everyday life than they even realize. And, and also I, I wanted to talk, you know, to cover the very difficult subject of stereotypes when it comes to mental illness and 
you know, symptoms of things like schizophrenia and psychosis. And I had come across a number of, when I was doing the research, I'd come across a number of really compelling stories of people who had been very similar to Annie. They had woken up with different personalities and sometimes even speaking a different language. And I wanted there to be a level of compassion because Annie does not have compassion for this. She is has a very harsh view of it and very, very critical of herself. And um, yeah. that was hard to tackle as a writer because you don't want to offend, but at the same time, you want to capture somebody's inter- internal journey of yes. acceptance and compassion. Mm-hmm. And she does that. It's an integral part of her journey is to, to, to find a way to f- heal and forgive and find compassion. And maybe that if somebody has somebody in their life who's suffering from something like this, that you don't rush to judgment and assume that we all know what is real because we don't, and we don't, you know, what is real to me may be very different than what is real to you. And there's got to be an open-mindedness there and a level of patience and compassion. And I think that that can be lacking sometimes in our society because there's such a fear of losing control and people who have problems with um, losing touch with reality. That's terrifying. And so sort of push it away or judge it harshly and can find a little bit more compassion for that. That's a really beautiful thing. And yeah, so I hope I brought a little bit of awareness to that in the unusual way I have approached the subject. (laughs) (laughs) The last question I always ask authors has to do with the title of the podcast. So desideratum is a Latin word that means essential things. When I was growing up, there was a poem called Desiderata that my parents had hanging up and it was just sort of part of our uh, life lessons. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I'll send you a copy of it. It's please do. It begins with go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. So I like to ask authors for you, what are the essential things or what is most essential to you? Uh, I would say a, a sense of belonging is essential for me personally. I know I need to feel a sense of belonging and that can take place in the form of my, my family unit or in friendship um, or just belonging in this time and in place in my life. And so, yeah, I would say, I would say belonging and well, I mean, gosh, my children, obviously, I mean, it's like home is where they are and I travel a lot and most of the time I take them with me. And sometimes I don't. And when I don't, there's a feel that there is something essential missing. And my daughters are starting to get, you know, they're just a few years behind where I think yours may be. And I can feel that separation starting to take place, you know, which is a really hard thing when you're used to having them right at your knee all day long. (laughs) But uh, nonetheless, I can, I can tell that their presence and existence in my life will always be essential. It doesn't matter where they are in the world. So I would say that, yeah, a sense of belonging and my children and you know obviously from somebody who wrote an entire book that's kind of a a love letter to how much we love a house that we live in you know and I need to feel like I have a my space that I'm in is imperative I need to feel that the space that I'm in is welcoming and comforting Mm -hmm. and so whenever I go someplace new I'm kind of always sussing it out to make sure that it's going to to be a good fit yes I agree I've moved around a lot um, myself lived in many places. And I've told my kids as they sort of venture out into the world that you can always come home. You will find your sense of home 
where you are, mm -hmm. that you, you will connect and feel a sense of place that feels mm -hmm. good to you eventually. So it's hard. I think it's a hard thing for a young adult to figure out, but yeah, I love that answer. I love that. Cause I think belonging is, is tied into all those things, how mm -hmm. we feel in our family, how we feel loved and understood by the people around us, but also where we are in the world, you know, and feeling that that sense of place feeds us in some way mm -hmm. that, we, that we feel connected to it. And I think you did a, I mean, that's a neat thing about this story is that in London, in New York City, and in the Yellow House, all three, there is sort of something idyllic about each place. There is something, right. and each is sort of a part of her, interestingly, mm -hmm. right? That, mm -hmm. we can be, that we can be at home in different places in our lives and and inversions of ourself, I guess. So, right. Yeah. That, and that was also beautifully stated and summarized. I love the way you put that. Well, I have had a fantastic time talking to you. You've been really generous with your time. I can't believe this was your debut novel. You have such a gift for braiding and weaving things together. And this, the emotions that you evoked were just sincere for me. So, I really thank you. It. I kind of needed to hear that today. So thank you so much. That's really a gift. I appreciate you saying that. You're welcome. You can find the rest of the story by debut novelist and Amazon bestseller, Kelly McNeil, on her website. That's Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, McNeil, M-C-N-E-I-L, dot com. Thanks to Brilliance Audio for sharing Amanda Lee Cobb's immersive narration. And as always, thank you for listening. This has been Episode 41.